Welcome to Conlary, the podcast about constructed languages, the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hi. Hidden in the snow somewhere. Yeah, just with a peephole to see the sun every once in a while. <laughs> and uh, today we're doing a Natlang feature. Uh, we're going to talk about a Natlang called Menya. It's uh, a language of Papua New Guinea, which, of course, we know has something like 800. 140 languages in that tiny island, and they're all so interesting. They are all so interesting. Mm -hmm. So, why don't we get started on this? Uh, So, it's um, it's part of this Angan uh, language family. I don't know how to pronounce some of the things here. Right. But uh, the Angan language family, which is a little bit more phonologically complex than other PNG languages? Yes. Um, more complex syllable shapes, all sorts of funny morphophonetics happening. Um, we'll talk about one or two of the weirdnesses as we go on. Um, mm-hmm. Papua New Guinea is interesting. There's these aerial features, but even within that, you get this crazy diversity, which means you can find almost anything you're looking for in a language of Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, what they normally have, though, is... Typically not crazy complex phonetic inventories or um, syllable shapes, um, but the Angan family tends to be a little bit more complex than its neighbors. And we are talking relatively. There's not it's there's not a huge number of there's there's not a huge number of consonants certainly. No, uh, but it's interesting in that like it has prenasal a prenasalized stop series in right that. right, which is. Common enough, if you're going to have three series of stops, then one of them is pretty likely to be um, pre-nasalized voiced stops. It's not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, this only has two. Yeah, it only has two series of so stops. It's a little bit weirder, but not, but you know, not unheard of. Yeah, not, not. It's not too crazy, but you know, uh, you can have. I, I, I feel like it sort of illustrates. You can have some interesting features in uh, a phonemic inventory without having it be crazy huge. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, the vowel system is six vowels. It's the, the, like the standard five vowel system plus schwa. But I, is, is it the case that like, is this, um, I think we've seen another language like this where like the schwa acts more like a high variant of ah. Or something like it's that. Not, I've not stared, you know, I'm not the big phoneme guy. I don't, I didn't stare in detail at what's going on. The, so we're using one of these grammars from the SIL. Um, yes. And they always, and it's a really great one. It's a huge thing. It's like, uh, almost 250 pages. Um, and they do their, uh, organized phonology data statements. They, they, they like to do of four languages. Um, mm-hmm. And in it, it sure looks like the schwa thing is a completely independent vowel sound. Okay. Because they do the minimal pairs and it occurs pretty much everywhere. It's not a variant of something. So are these, is this phonemic inventory very much like the other languages in the area? Uh, well, 
my it has um uvular stop uh, mm-hmm. which i gather is a bit unusual uh, it also mm-hmm. has a yeah. voiced pre-nasalized uvular plosive which has got to be very weird <laughs> normally mm-hmm. uh, the voiced uvulars are pretty unusual they tend to disappear pretty quickly wait uvular it has a voice wait oh the, the that's a voiced okay yes. i i'm star- i'm looking at the document with much too small font. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's a little bit weird. Um, I've not done, you know, a statistical breakdown of what's going on um, in terms of inventory size and places and manners of articulation. Um, it uses dentals rather than alveolars, which is interesting mm-hmm. enough. Um, it has lots of nasals. The only nasal it doesn't have is a uvular, except presumably it assimilates when it's, when you have the, um, Prenasalized stop. Um, right. It has no phonemic liquids. Oh. That's a uh-huh. common enough trait in Papua New Guinea. That is Guinea. weird. Yeah, it, it's common enough in Papua New yeah. Guinea. Um, although mm. the dental voiceless stop, you know, ta, presents mm-hmm. as a flap and an L allophonically, um, yeah. but is not a phoneme. Mm. Overall, like the, the sort of phonological processes and such were not did not really jump out at me as being too sort of unusual. Yeah. Um, the one that I saw that I thought I'd point out is, uh, um, I'll just quote from the, from page 10 here, the approximate W triggers labialization of the consonant before the next phonemic vowel and makes any intervening phonemic vowel be, ooh, epithetic vowel being ooh. So basically what, what we're saying is like, you have a W, plus consonant, plus vowel, or it looks like you, you could even have any um, w, w and any number of consonants before a vowel, and then the la- last consonant would be labialized. So mm-hmm. it's like sort of the, the labial moving. Interesting. Yeah. Um, see, nasals can be syllabic nuclei, so you can have uh, nasal vowels effectively. Um, the language really hates dentals. Um, mm-hmm. they're not common to start with mm-hmm. and they assimilate in place mm-hmm. so that like if an M is followed by the syllable two, the result is mboo. Oh, wow. Mboo. That's, that's really mboo. interesting that it would go yes. to the boom rather than keeping the place. Right. And so I forget, uh, where I saw this. It's in here somewhere that it just gives the, the numbers and the uvular stop is the most common consonant sound, which is pretty darn weird. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that is, that is interesting. It's, you, you see a bunch of stuff going on with the, the dentals yeah. in, in this, in this whole big list. So yeah. Um, well, let the language ha- hates dentals. That's interesting. <laughs> <Right>. that, uh, <laughs> trivia. Uh, sort of moving on. What else we want to comment on? Do you mean for, Phonemes, or are we ready to move on to the next? Uh, let, let's let's move on more into sort of morphology space. Okay. And well, the stuff. language is pretty fusional, and you get lots of portmanteau, which just means that you know you have something that looks like a tense morpheme and something that looks like an aspect morpheme, and they get glommed together in ways that are not mm. entirely predictable. Um, mm. So analysis can be tricky, mm-hmm. um, and the language has. This is complex enough that the last few pages of this grammar are full of charts. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not clear charts. They're charts where all sorts of um, fun is going on. That's always fun. Yeah. You have lots of giant charts yeah. to look at. Yeah. No, that always makes um, that makes a certain kind of con longer feel very reassured. <laughs> uh, I'm doing a lot of charts recently with one one of my con legs. So yes, yes. See, I, there it is. Charts are charts are reassuring. I try to step away from them, but I always feel a little bit unsure, and I always you know gravitate towards them once again at the end of the day. So charts charts are helpful for the 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 things that they're useful for. <laughs> Okay. Good. Brilliant. Good. Revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was a Yogi Berra thing. If, yeah. If anything. But I mean, what I mean is like not every language will you even need like any charts. Right. For anything other than maybe pronouns. But, you know, if you have, you know, complex inflectional systems like Menya looks like it has, then... Having handy charts is just a good overview reference. Yeah. Mandarin Chinese is less well served by lots of charts. Yeah. There's, there's basically no reason for it. <laughs> um, all right. So on to some fun on page four. So this grammar again, it's from Sill. It's great. On page 14, we have, um, every sentence is marked by, um, I called it speech act marking. They call it, um, mood clitics. So it's mm. either marked as indicative, a polar question, that is a yes-no question, a content question, or a dubitative. The speaker is expressing doubt or lack of knowledge. Mm. What I like about the dubitative, apart from it being fun to say, dubitative, um, is that not only does it necess- does it mark um, doubt about the full statement, but it can mean that you have doubt about the identity of some referent within the clause. Okay. That's, that's mm. an interesting sort of, yeah. you know, marker in the, in it, sort of marking ju- not just a whole sentence, but like a, a component in the sentence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's nice to see. I don't know why it's, it, I, I, I gravitate this to, but polar and content having a, a, a polar questions and content questions having something fundamentally different that's not that unusual but it's it's an interesting you know thing to look at right it's an interesting sort of redundancy because most of us think well you've got the content question word there why on earth do you need mm-hmm. what why would you need such a thing right um one thing i i was just uh looking at just just as i read through the indicative mood thing is it looks like sort of the indicative mood mark marker has a lot of allomorphy Yes. So that's the, and it's dependent on like what the last, what word class the last word in the sentence is. That makes it, that sort of is interesting to me that sort of, I guess maybe it attaches to nouns, adjectives, and verbs and becomes this just e, but mm-hmm. otherwise it's ni or something like yeah. that. The word order in this language is extremely rigid. Mm-hmm. So it's almost always going to be finding itself attached to a verb. Right. S-O-V is the way it goes. Right. So most of the time you're going to get that E variant, but it's it's interesting to, to note. So, and let's talk about word order 
um, I didn't see as much in this section. They have a nice little statistical overview of the word yep. order. Um, that's that's um, not uh, not as interesting, I think, to conlangers as to linguists. Because, <laughs> you know, well, it's a useful <laughs> warning, not a warning, but a hint mm-hmm. that there's a, even in a language when we can say the word order is rigidly SOV, it, there's still always weirdnesses that can happen where it's not. Yeah. And it's sort of just rarely uh, deviates from the SOV. It's yes. mostly SOV. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you can drill down in this and find, you know, what are the specific environments where it changes word order. William, didn't, didn't you make a note about um, what was it? I'm not looking at the document. I'm looking at the at the um, you, you made a note. Uh, oh, about the verb conjugation, right? The, the the morphosyntax is object verb subject, um, at least some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to the full delightful complexity of the verb shortly. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Verb. The verb is is different from the the sentence. Yes. Structure, which that's kind of an obvious thing, but it's useful for people to have that in mind as an option. Yeah. Um. Uh, there's now, when you talk about that, you're, are you saying like the uh, affixes when they when they get put onto the verb, right. they show them that order, right? So if you look on page twenty four, you see that the what he's calling the affecti here, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. basically the object is a prefix, um, whereas mm-hmm. the subject um, will be a portmanteau form that's mostly um, suffixed. The whole subject marking system is a big hairy mess because Menya uses a switch reference mm-hmm, system. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about these at some time in the past where there is a special piece of morphology, in this case lots of special pieces of morphology, that say whether the clause um, refers to the same subject or a different subject of the previous clause. That's really cool. Um, and that's just, I mean, there, you have, this is the problem always, right? We talk about people a lot and you have lots of people and you need to keep track of who's doing what to whom. And there are different ways to manage this. One is to have lots of pronouns. Um, so in some sense, English has lost all grammatical gender, but retains it for he and she just because it's useful, um, from a narrative perspective. And that's just me speculating wildly, but that seems a reasonable argument for that. Um, mm-hmm. you can keep naming people, which is tedious. Um, but some languages pick this scheme as a, a way to deal with that. And that is to have an overt marking, whether the subject is the same, um, as it was in the previous clause or it was different. This seems to happen a lot when you do not have any distinction between third person pronouns, right? You just have a third person pronoun. That's it. It's not differentiated for. Right. There's no, there's no gender ch- changes. There's no obviative. There's no right. logger for. Yes. Nothing like that. Yeah, none of, none of the various schemes that are available to keep track of this sort of reference management. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you say? Although there's a, a, a vestigial um, gender system in this language, which we'll see when we get to the pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some uh, verb serializing as well, which gets into fun um, because of uh, how it, it interacts with the switch reference system. Um mm-hmm. So we look on page 34, we have the pronouns, first, second, third, singular, dual, and plural. I 
is I, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly, duels are pretty common in Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. Um, here's a question I didn't pick up on this. Is the dual, um, is there a dual throughout the language or is it mainly in the personal pronouns or I think there are in other, other verb markings? Yes. Yeah, some of the verb agreement markings, there's still a dual, but I'm not sure, like, how extensive. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to remember any reference to overt number marking on nouns. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I would, I would want to question about is. It, I can't remember. We have all sorts of interesting things about nouns, uh, but, uh. I'm looking at, in, in the person number prefixes for kin nouns, your has a dual form. Um, but I don't know if that's just because it doesn't, mention that in the kin term gender for the third person reference your okay well but, but okay we'd have to we'd have to be reading that explanation to figure out exactly what that dual refers to um yeah it doesn't look like nouns are overtly marked for number mm-hmm. anyway the there are sort of there's genitive forms pronouns that's normal there's emphatic forms of pronouns and hate the word i know uh, hate it so what does emphatic mean in this particular language yeah who who freaking knows what page are you seeing the emphatics on uh just page oh. 35 that yeah, chart yeah, yeah. it lists emphatic forms uh there there's demonstratives you pointed me at the Numeral system. No, William. you're jumping way far ahead here, George. Yes. Okay. Let's let's not go there. Not yet. Um, the demonstratives <laughs> are nice. They're on page thirty-six, um, mm. so, and the more they're very complex because they get glommed together in these big words, but they mm-hmm. um, distinguish distance, like near, far, at some indefinite distance, and something that, that's called the exactive that refers to something that is known to be at a particular location. Um, mm-hmm. or, or rather the exact entity that you're referring to. Um, you can encode um, whether it is at eye level, above you, or below you. Oh. Um, what? Forms referring to people can mark gender, uh, you know, masculine or feminine, um, diminutive or honorific. Um, and they get glommed together in all sorts of complicated ways, and they are preferred to the third-person pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so there are several pages. There are several pages devoted to um, how yeah, how it all falls out morphologically and phonologically when everything's chunked together. Yeah, it looks like a, a very complex system. That uh, it looks like at least uh, at one point the eye level distinction only is applied to the far. Um, right, but it's in different places. It acts differently. If you look on page 39, the masculine singular demonstrative pronouns, the mid versus far distinction is maintained at all of the levels. Oh, okay. So the so, one down yeah. there and the one way down there are different words. Hmm. So you can, so that's, that's just an interesting thing to point out is that you, it's possible for a language to have this sort of Asymmetry in one particular system. Sure, absolutely. Very, very easily. Yeah. Um, right. So that was that. The, um, what they call dyadic kin pronouns are really interesting. These pop up in various places around the world where the dyadic means that the word refers to two individuals in a particular relationship. Mm hmm. 
so that the phrase I and my son and the phrase I and my father are identical for a male speaker. Hmm. Okay. Um, They're identical? Yes. So it's like a, huh. Okay, so it's, no, no, it's just, it's like you have a word that's saying father and son. Yes, basically. Yeah, kind of like saying, okay, I think I understand. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. And then the relationships for which there are such pronouns are husband-wife, parent-child, a separate father-son one, brother-brother, sister-sister-brother-sister, and then grandparent relationships, and then also in-law relationships. So is that kind of like spouse, the wife would say this is my spouse, and the husband would say this is my spouse, but they're the same? Yes. Same, it's, you know, kind of static. Okay. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. That, that that actually reminds me of something in Chinese where there's, you you can have, you can just compound to, uh, uh, compound the, the, the two kinship terms together, right. and you get something like that. Um, it's usually like attributive. Right. And then on page 229, they have a nice chart. Yay, chart. Um, giving various forms in different numbers of these, um, kin pronoun forms. Mm hmm. Yay. Look at all the charts. Yes. All the charts. <laughs> um. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> right. Um, in terms of other kinship words, as I'm going to page 45, these are, not surprisingly, obligatorily possessed. Okay. Not not too uh, un- unusual. So That's pretty common, yeah. Yeah, so, so a lot of languages, when we say obligatorily possessed, it's like you have to have some sort of possession marking on the kinship terms, which that happens in a, a, a number of languages. A number of American Indian languages do it that way. Sure. It's It's sort of... It makes sense to me because when you're using a kinship term, you're always defining someone in relation to someone else. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the, or usually you are, there's, there's not as many circumstances where you prefer to mothers generally. Right. Right. In Navajo, uh, you just can't say mothers. It has to be possessed. It's my mother, your mother, something. Mm-hmm. Huh. Hmm. Moving on. Um, there's an interesting thing I noted on page 48. Um, you can have complex noun phrases where you just have a bunch of nouns crammed together without any sort of overt linking, sort mm-hmm. of like English does. Mm-hmm. Or German. Or German. Well, German or- has compounds, and sometimes there's um, uh, word changes involved there. Oh, yes, sure. Engli- mm-hmm. English is more straightforward in that. Right. Uh do we have a good example? Right, so dung house is toilet, song person is singer, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just nouns, um, noun, noun. Um, right, right, right. And I just thought that was interesting. You could th- 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 These big things, you know, like, I'm trying to think of, you know, the tax office, right? It's not like tax mm-hmm. is going to turn into an adjective or anything. It's just nouns crammed together. Um, George, finally, we can talk about the numbers. Page yeah, <laughs> looking looking at the numbers, I saw this. So this is under quantification. You'll find it eventually. Yeah. Um. Actually, sort of in the demonstrative section because they have some relation to them. But uh, what I found interesting is like there's like a a trinary system in the lower numbers. Yep. Right. So one is hunku. 
uh, two is hunkoaku, and then three is hunkoaku hunkoe. And basically, what is happening morphologically is three means the three breaks down as two one, and then four breaks down as two two, and then with five you get uh, it, it's all the hand on one side. Yeah. So you you you. I think it's the this trinary system still does affect some hu- numbers up higher, but you also end up with um, things of counting how many hand. And twelve is all of the well hand to and give two you, of the feet uh, below. Right, right. So you have elements of several different um, mathematical bases going on. It's mm-hmm. interesting to have the the. The, the 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 trinary thing that's not something I've ever seen before in a language, so that's an interesting little tidbit. Yeah, the thing that's common to Papua New Guinea is referring to parts of your limbs to refer to numbers. Mm. That's very common, where you count your fingers and then you start moving up your arm and various joints and your shoulder and all of that. And that sort of mapping of the body to particular um, numerical values is very common in Papua New Guinea. And and cross linguistically using like your hand for five at the very least is is common right all over That's so practically universal but yeah yeah um, although their 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 original native number system is being obliterated by Tokpisin so yeah uh, well that's the other interesting thing <laughs> you you can borrow just entire number systems from another fam- from another language it's very interesting tidbit of of it. It's interesting um, how often that happens. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that they have a special suffix to, uh, I'm starting on page 60. Um, we have various words related to time, mm-hmm. and they have a special time suffix for somewhat more complex things than just, um, you know, now, tomorrow, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was neat. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Right. Um, and then starting on page 61, we have a large number of locative uh, suffixes. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's more than just, it's definitely not a simple locative. It's, no. It, uh, there's none of these, none of these look like just, I guess there's, there's a couple. Well, let's say at the specified location, which you right. could say is sort of the, the maybe more the default, but it's like within a region at a distant mm-hmm. location and or unseen from the point of reference. So that's that's some pretty interesting. That's I think that this is a language people might want to look at if they're interested in adding a bunch of different locative mar- markers. Yeah, yeah. To uh, and uh, they have. Oh, they have that same eye-level distinction in the locative markers, too. Right. Well, you can take the demonstratives and glom them together with these suffixes, and you get a large... Right, right. <laughs> you get another very big chart. Um, yes, although it's not, yes. it doesn't appear to be completely filled out, and I don't know. And even the author says it's not clear if that is due to lack of elicited data or if there's actually no form there. Yeah. That's something that we should always warn about when people are looking at, like, the SIL grammars or any grammar of a language that is not very very well studied is just there's always a chance that something is missing just because we don't have documentation for it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Or it might be missing so. because it's not there. I mean, that's always possible too. That we don't. Yeah. Expect. I mean, it could it could be not there. But I mean, like, if you're looking at a language as a model and you know that it's not been studied that much, maybe there's uh maybe there's this one reference grammar you found. It's sort of like yeah, you can sort of choose whether or not you want to fill in the gaps just as part of your creative decisions when you're transferring these systems into your own conlang. So. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, shall we move on to verbs? Verbs. Yes. Let's see. Wacky verbs. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty. I mean, verbs are often very interesting in numerous ways, and this one is morphologically rich. Um, verb roots have at least two forms. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one form that's used um, before a consonant other than the uvular. And then you have another form that is used before vowels or the uvular. Mm-hmm. So, phonological conditioning. Yes, phonological not so, conditioning. Not so unusual. Although it's interesting that um, the uvular is patterning with vowels. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, with the vowels, do they put like um, do they put like, like a glottal stop before the vowels? Because then the uvular and the glottal stop kind of be... No, I mean, yeah, there's, they don't write a glottal stop there. No, but. there's all sorts of fun kinds of elision and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um... There's a little bit of uh, fairly complex changes, like um, one example is puck versus pus, um, mm-hmm. but you can get other more complex um, changes, like one is me, but the other form is nua. <laughs> Harvest is, the basic root is just puh, um, but the derived <laughs> form is sua. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get some interesting um some more interesting, more complex uh, things going on sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was just cute. Um, I noted in passing that the um, verb for to be a means to be when it's intransitive, and it means to put when it's used like a transitive. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's that's an interesting thing. Uh, I just thought that was cute. I missed that. Uh, what what. What do you? What does it mean intransitive to be? Uh, like when it when the verb has is used adjective? when the verb is used with intransitive morphology, it means to be. Oh, okay. And when it's used with transitive morphology, it means put. Oh, okay, okay. I was playing with something like that in one of my conlangs, mm-hmm. having the two kind of uh, there's transitive and intransitive, but having the roots mean different things with different yeah mm. with the different suffixes. Um, okay, it looks like. It looks like it's like it's it can be to be mostly with like uh adjective predicates or something like that. Okay. Uh wait. Oh. <laughs> okay. Never mind. I, <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm overthinking. <laughs> there's no uh starting on page about uh eighty four, there's no overt um distinction between a direct object and an indirect object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the indirect object, the recipient. However, when you have um, the object marking on a mm-hmm. verb for a transitive verb like for to give, yeah. the recipient, the indirect object, is marked on the verb, not the item being given. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So, And this is another principle where the thing you care most about um, is most likely to be co-referenced on the verb. So since we've got... Verbs that are have polypersonal agreement anyway, um, the recipient becomes the item that's marked on the verb. 
All right. Because in general, that's going to be a person who we usually care more about. Right, that- right. Always, always human beings are usually at the top of, of what we care about in, uh, in languages. I was going to say that an animacy based thing or is it just, um, a more case driven thing? Well, it's like, always example- the indirect object that's marked, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not really animacy based other than like that might be the tendon, the what the tendency came from, but it's, it's just, it's just, purely a grammatical thing that they 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 mark the they preferentially mark the the indirect object so uh a, compound verbs where noun verb compounds occur noun mm. and then followed by a verb of some sort um these are pretty common mm-hmm. um, more common in fact than um uh other sorts of compounds like noun noun compounds are not particularly common um I, I mean, words that are definitely compound as opposed to simply modifying each other. So there's a little section where he goes into that on page uh, 87 and mm-hmm. page 146. Are there better examples on page 46? There are. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So they, they talk about verbal noun plus generic verb. The generic verbs are the sort of things you expect. Do, be, make, hit, go, cut, say. Um, mm-hmm. So that you know, you'll have a single noun might occur with multiple versions of these verbs to produce different kinds of meanings, um, mm-hmm. such that the word for hand combined with cut, to means to count, um, whereas with to act, a cut means to hold. Um, mm-hmm. With the word for what I assume is teeth, to cut teeth means to bite, or cut with the teeth, rather. Um, mm. and to, what is, uh, well, there's a verb root, uh, which combined with the, the toe word means to laugh or to smile. So lots of interesting possibilities for related words. Um, yeah. Okay. So on page 90, we have these interesting polarity prefixes. Um, mm-hmm. so you can have a positive statement or a negative statement. I go to the store. I do. I don't go to the store. Um, in, Menya, the positive um, polarity has both a strong version and a weak version. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the strong version is almost never present because the vowel is uh and disappears. Um, mm-hmm. And the weak version is sometimes zero marked. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm proud, you know, I'm, I wonder how the, the field workers were banging their heads trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> Yeah, that, um, that's... So they talk about those starting on page 90, and those are interesting, and they talk about various implications. But there is a, a prefix that goes on to the verb um, as mm-hmm. for polarity, in addition to um, uh, the rest of the negative marking, which is um, usually handled with helping verbs, actually. Yeah, okay. Um, that's... <laughs> Yes, George. Yeah. <laughs> there's a frustrative. I didn't find. Yes. What page 122. So there's a whole bunch of, um, verb moods. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I've not mentioned, it's, I thought I put it in the notes. There are three degrees of past tense, but it only occurs on finite verb forms. Oh, okay. So, well, that, that's not too unusual, but the three degrees of past tense. That's not that unusual. Yeah, anyway, that's, so not, that's moves, not weird. No. Um, no. We've got a hortative, we've got an ablative, which just means I can do something versus 
I can't. Right. Um, an intentive, which is very commonly used and it marks an intention to do something. The obligative, I, namely, I must do something. Um, apparently, there are two futures, but I don't understand what the difference is between them. <laughs> but I, I admit I didn't stare too much at that. There's a permissive, namely, someone is allowed to do that. Um, there's a contrary to fact. And the frustrative indicates an unfulfilled intention. Ah, okay. <laughs> so that that makes... That makes a lot of sense to have, uh, so an unfulfilled intention. This is, that's like a sentence like, I was going to finish reading today. Yeah. The implication in that was that you did not. Right, right. It's sort of like an optative that also implies that it's not been completed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's, that's one that I might steal. <laughs> Um, I've seen it come up in other places. Um, Hopi has a little particle, which is usually translated as something like in vain. Mm-hmm. But you can also use it with a, a, an impersonal statement like it rained in vain actually means it was supposed to rain, but didn't. <laughs> right. So that, well, my point is that in vain is not a very good translation when it can be used. Right, 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 um, right. And other things like that. But right, something that was expected or planned or intended to happen, but did not is something that pops up in languages from time to time. Yes, of course. Now, what is a medial verb? Right. So medial verbs are extremely common in this language, and they're basically verb forms that encode encode various kinds of relationships that we normally think of about as dependent clauses. Time, purpose, reason, that sort of thing. When they arrived, I told them this, that, so on and so forth. Um, While, after, before... um, these are all common things. Um, sometimes they're marked with, um, in the Turkic languages and the Altaic languages, they call these things converbs. Mm-hmm. Which is going to be confusing in our community, but. Yes, con- uh. yes, converbs. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Yes. Um, so it's really interesting and complex in Menya because you have multiple converb, not converb, multiple medial verbs. Um, mm-hmm which encode your switch reference stuff. So you have one set of forms for same subject and some set of forms for different subject. And that's what they call DR and SR? Different referent and... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, and there's a whole bunch of these. Mm-hmm. Um, pages and pages discussing this stuff, and it's really interesting. The The syntax section, I mean, we talk about the morphology of these, and then there's an entire separate section of the document explaining how these things interact. So... It's really interesting and rich, and you can learn a lot by reading this. Right, right. Um, and one consequence of these medial verbs is that there is not much in the way of conjunctions. There are simple things like and, but, or kinds of things, um, which split mm-hmm. differently than most of us expect. Um, but the other sorts of conjunctions that we expect are not necessary because of, of the myrtle, uh, excuse me, medial verb forms. Oh, right. Because they take up a lot of that space in yes. in terms of making in, in function, yeah, yeah, in, in in their function, yeah, okay. Negation is usually a compound, um, so what you do yeah. is you add the the negative prefix, yeah, ma, um, right, and then the whole f- phrase is nominalized, and then you mm-hmm. use a form of to do or to be. Um, okay, 
with any extra um, marking that's necessary because your verb has just been turned into a noun. Okay. Yeah, I see that. So it's like uh, I say, I do not baking. Right. Or something like that. Something that's, like that. Uh, that's, that's just an interesting and bizarre sort of negation thing. Um, it's uh, not that common. It's not that uh, uncommon, rather, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I want to go to a generative s- syntactician and show him this and say, now, where is neg P here? <laughs> uh, right. Uh, what does the P stand for, neg P? Uh, Phrase, oh, negative phrase. Okay, got it, got it. Um, yeah, the neg phrase has just been moved for weirdly, and then other stuff. Yeah, no, it's it, I mean, in terms of auxiliary verb constructions, which this language language already uses um, pretty abundantly. This isn't that unusual. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Um, it was it's just surprising to me, though. <laughs> yeah, um, there's of course various kinds of verb chaining and serial verbs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, rather, verb chaining is, that's the sort of, um, menial verb stuff. Uh, verb serialization happens, but it's pretty restrained compared to some other languages in the, the area. Um, in terms of syntax, one thing that I thought was really neat is that pretty much any kinds of clause, um, mm-hmm. you don't nominalize verbs per se, you nominalize entire clauses. Um, very confusingly, this grammar calls it deverbalization. <laughs> Um, but there are lots of interesting examples of it Um, so that for example um, abstract nouns like happiness is just the phrase you know do happy um, nominalized yeah okay that's not that's not too surprising really right but the ability to turn entire clauses into nouns um, is another way to do interesting things with syntax yeah Um, we can in English you can turn Turn an entire clause into an attributive, but it's that's more like that's more like another way of making relative clauses, right. really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, starting around page two hundred and ten is where all of this interesting um, clause nominalization is going on with interesting examples, um, interesting possibilities for verb generation in languages where you don't want to have just um, endless piles of suffixes. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, on page 213, there's an interesting um, uh, end quote particle. Yeah. Hmm. Um, which uh, combines with other things in complicated ways. So it presents, it has lots of allophony, basically. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, lots of, um, it, it can just sort of connect to all sorts of other particles and such. Uh, yeah. or ya, yeah, or na, or ka. It has lots yeah, of. Yeah, 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 yeah. It presents itself in lots of ways. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, that's, that's something I don't know how often I really see it in conlangs, but it does occur in, in natural languages that you can have, uh, not just end of quotes, but like, doesn't Japanese have like something that brackets a, a direct quote? I don't know. Um, I think it does. But among, like, among conlangs, not Vite does, but I don't know any natlangs that have open and closed quote particles. I thought the Japanese did. Maybe if there's any Japanese speakers out there that can that can correct me on that, then then feel free. But um, it's like it sounds like an Englangy thing. It does a little mm-hmm. when when you say say it, 
but you know you have this end of quote quidic clitic in Menya, and that's definitely not an Angelangy thing because of all the variant forms of it. So you could probably do some interesting things with something like that. Um, Like I said, there's entire sections in the syntax talking about um, different kinds of clauses due to these medial verbs and maintaining, you know, who's doing what to whom um, at any given moment. Um, is pretty complex and it's hard to talk about. So I'm not focused on it. But if you're, you know, if you're trying to write a story in your conlang and you find yourself running up against walls where it's not clear who's doing what, um, you might find this interesting. And in terms of, I have often found it hard to understand what's going on with switch reference systems because they don't give you enough examples, frankly. Um, this grammar is full of examples about this very thing. Um, all over the place. It talks about it extensively, and in addition to the main grammar text, there are several um, stories at the end. Um, right, there's some stories. Um, so no, no dictionary. There's some some limited stuff on uh, kin uh, kinship terms, but no no like significant dictionary that I see. No, um, the uh, the SIL people tend to write their dictionary separately from their grammars. Yeah. Um, in any case, but but glossed. Uh, you know, glossed example sentences and stories are useful mm-hmm. because you can see things, especially stories are great, right? You have multiple people involved and you can see the switch reference system actually in work. Right. And it is instructive and useful and improving both morally and conlinguistically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's some marriage advice if you're, if you're interested in that. Oh yes. <laughs> stories and marriage advice. <laughs> All right. So I think that's about all we really wanted to cover in, on that uh, on this particular episode. Uh, looks like we're having a, a pretty we have a pretty good one. I'm I will link to the grammar. It's available freely online, um, and uh, we will if and nobody has anything any final notes to say. No. Yeah. And then I think we can call this an episode, and I will say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>